Amen. I tell you, I, I, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm blessed. I, I, I look at this, uh, this full stage of musicians leading us, and I remember a day when it was just MK by herself, and um, the Lord just continues, and that was great too, by the way, MK, but, uh, but the Lord is building our worship, um, but as Michael said in the beginning, we give away glory. Uh, that worship is for his glory. So now we're going to continue in our worship by looking to God's word. Uh, we have been making our way through the gospel according to John, and we'll continue that this morning. Uh, last week we saw this passage in the beginning of John chapter 3 that was this, this encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus, and in that encounter, in that conversation, we, we heard so clearly as God spoke of the the new birth, the new birth that, that he sovereignly works in us. Today we come to a passage that is going to be very familiar. This passage is a passage that flows out of, of that call for new birth and it shows us the outworking of God's love. The Savior who would come and die for us. Let us let's ask the Lord's blessing as we come to this text today. Would you bow with me? Father, as we come to this passage that speaks so beautifully, so clearly to your love, I pray that you would, you would give us fresh, fresh eyes to see an old familiar passage. That in, in, in seeing anew, would we would be made anew. To that end, Father, I pray that, that I would be pleased, that, that Jesus would look good. In our, in our minds, in our hearts, in his name we pray, amen. Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. But everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. John 3.16 is the Super Bowl verse, right? It's the verse that the Christian athletes sort of paint on their cheeks when they, when they go into the game. It is the verse that Christian evangelists will, will write on the, the sign that they hold up in the hopes that some of us might open our Bibles and read this verse and be changed by it. If you have memorized any of Scripture at all, it is likely that John 3.16 is the verse 
that you have memorized. It's the verse that is beloved. Because of its simplicity and because of its profound truth. But what does it mean? Maybe that's not entirely the right question. I'm not going to pretend to stand up here before you and and unpack some new hidden truth from John 3.16. Maybe the more appropriate question is for us to ask, what does it emphasize? Where are the accent marks in this text? Some of us place the, the accent marks on eternal life. Some of us place the accent marks on on perishing. Some of us place the accent mark on whoever. (laughs) Wherever wherever you place those accent marks, wherever you emphasize in this text, that emphasis is going to draw out for you uh, maybe a different or more nuanced meaning. This week as I entered this text, I actually had somebody say uh, on Monday, hey, I know what you're preaching this week. John 3.16, why don't you just take the week off? Everybody knows it, right? <laughs> um, it's actually the opposite. <laughs> Pray, Lord, give me fresh eyes to see an old familiar text. I believe that as he's given me fresh eyes to see an old familiar text, he's showing me where he has placed the accent mark in this text. I believe the Lord our God has given us this powerful verse with accent marks on his love. His love that when we begin to see the emphasis drawn out in this verse right there, it's going to shape everything for us. It's going to change the way we see this verse and all of Scripture. So let's take a look. Verse begins four. It's a danger when we just memorize a verse. We, we lose that four because that four takes us beyond this verse. That four takes us to what has come before. It connects John 3.16 with John 3, 1 through 15 in the conversation, the, the engagement Jesus has had with Nicodemus. Four connects us to the sovereign new birth that God has promised by the movement of his spirit. The sovereign new birth connects us to the whoever that we find in John 3.16. The new birth and the whoever both take us to God's love. For God so loved, not for God kind of loved, God sort of loved, God so loved. And in the so loved, we see the emphasis of the intensity of God's love presented to us. God so loved. But love, in the past tense, a past tense that impacts, a past tense that takes us all the way back to eternity past, God so loved from before the foundation of the world. The emphasis here is on the love of God, a love that it goes on in the verse to say that, for God so loved 
that, meaning it had impact. He did something as a result of this love. He gave his only son. Only son. It, it, it emphasizes the greatness of the gift. The greatness of the gift further emphasizes the greatness of his love. Think about it this way. I'd be willing to wager. Everybody in this room loves Hershey's Kisses. Okay? So if I told you I love you so much that I want to give you this Hershey's Kiss, you'd be thankful, wouldn't you? It would mean something. It would be a token of my love. But if I were to say instead of I love you so much that I'm going to give you a Hershey's Kiss, I love you so much. I'm going to give you a diamond ring. Now that would speak to a different kind of love, a different intensity of love. Because we understand on some level that the more costly the gift, the bigger the statement of love. But on some level, let's be careful. We're not talking about materialism here. We're not talking about the size of the ring. We're not talking about any of that stuff. We're not talking about materialism here. God is talking about His Son, His precious one and only Son. He loved us this much to give His Son. Let me tell you why this is so important. Now I'm just going to make a confession to you today. I want to confess before you that for much of my life, I have lived practically as a heretic. That to get your attention? <laughs> Let me tell you about my heresy. My heresy is this. I, I, I believe, though I'm not consistent in, in how this works out in my life, I believe in the, the uh, depravity of man. I believe in the heinousness of sin. My sin, your sin, sin that is not merely an action, but sin that is a matter of being. I believe that God points out the heinousness of sin and therefore how offensive that sin is to him. Because of that, and that is true, it is absolutely true. That's not actually not the heresy part. Here's the heresy part. I have thought and probably even taught on occasion that because of the heinousness of our sin, that the only way God could love us is through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. means I practically live as if God only loves me because Jesus died for me. And I've taught at times that God only loves you because Jesus died for you. But that's not what this verse says. And it's not what the whole Bible says. This verse and the whole Bible says that love came first. Because God loved, He gave Jesus over to death. So that we might live. He doesn't love us because Jesus made us clean. Jesus made us clean because he loved us. And because we have been made clean by Jesus, we are reconciled back to the Father who, as an outworking of his loving plan, has made a way for this relationship to be restored. Greatness 
of our sin emphasizes the greatness of His love. We've talked in our time as we've begun this journey through John's gospel about how John, the apostle, is presenting to us this beautiful picture of the personhood of Jesus. That, That when we read John's gospel, we see our Savior as a man. And when we see him as a man, we see his personhood, it draws out his love for us in new and in more uh, vital ways. But I believe this verse, John 3.16, is not drawing out the personhood of Jesus, but the personhood of God the Father. Telling us that the Father loves us this much. And his love is not a forced reaction. His love is a procuring cause. This week, I, I, I talked to a, a friend of mine, Ken. Ken is a, he's a pastor in a, another state. Ken and I served as interns together while we were in seminary. Ken is a former Marine, although he would be quick to tell you that there is no such thing as a former Marine. Once a Marine, always a Marine. And he looks the part. <laughs> you generally don't mess with Ken when you walk up to him on the street. Well, we were talking this week because Ken's daughter got engaged this week. She was telling me about his future son-in-law and how much they love him, but the truth is he also told me about the time when he took this young man to lunch. (laughs) My friend Ken had a few questions for this boy, and he interrogated him with the vigor that he might have once interrogated a prisoner of war. (laughs) We laughed about it, but I'll be honest with you, I felt for the young man. (laughs) So I could only imagine what that conversation was like. But the young man passed the test. And because he passed the test, Ken loves him. You understand, in some sense, in a very real sense, to be honest with you, Ken loves this boy because the boy was forced upon him. By his daughter who brought home the young man. You and I, if we are in Christ, we are the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. But the difference is our Heavenly Father does not love us because Jesus forced us on Him. Quite the opposite. Our Father sent the Son... To go and sacrifice his very life for an unworthy bride. You tell the difference. You tell me the difference. How much difference does it make to be loved this much? It changes everything. It changes everything to know that our love is not a forced reaction, but love. The love of God is a procuring cause. That reality, that reality is meant to drive our response. Yes, there is a response. We've spoken of the sovereignty of God. We've spoken of the sovereignty of God over the new, uh, the new birth. We, we heard that so clearly last week in the first 15 verses of John, a passage that culminates in where we are today. That tells us that God so loved the world. His world. 
world is, is Jew and Gentile. In other words, people of all kinds, of every tribe and nation and tongue. But the text is not pointing to a universal salvation. Actually, the opposite tells us that not all are saved. But though it does not point to a universal salvation, it absolutely points to a universal offer of the gospel. Here's also what it doesn't point out. It's not speaking about a sacrifice that makes salvation possible if we are wise enough to get the right answer. No, that's not what the new birth says. The new birth, we change from the, flesh, the nature of the flesh to the nature of the spirit. Last week we heard that even faith is a gift of God through the new birth, but, but we must respond, and our response is an indication of what the Lord is doing. If you go to bed at night and a storm comes up, and you see when you wake up in the morning the limbs on the ground and the, and the leaves that have fallen everywhere, you know that there was a wind blowing the night before. The after effect is an indication of the wind that has come through. The text is telling us in the context of the whole that our belief is an indication that the wind of the Holy Spirit has come through and done something powerful. We must respond. Our response is that indication. But how will we respond? What will be our response? One response mentioned in this text is that we might simply do nothing. To simply do nothing, as the text points it out, is to, to remain in darkness. But don't think for a second that, that doing nothing is to remain neutral. Jesus didn't come into a neutral world. Verse 17 and 18 tell us that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He had no need for that. You see, the world was already condemned. Not because Jesus made a pronouncement. The condemnation of the world was a condemnation that was there because of our sin. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. The world, the world was already condemned. And so to do nothing in response to the love of God that is manifested in the gift of Jesus' atoning sacrifice for us, that doing nothing means that we remain an enemy. Verse 19 then goes on to further explain that to do nothing is to love the darkness rather than the light. We love the darkness rather than the light because we actually like our sin. Our ways are wicked. Therefore, ultimately, to do nothing is to remain in self. Now, with all of that before us in this text, the, the passage rather lovingly says that to remain hidden, to remain in the darkness, to do nothing, it actually is to be subjected to curse, both now and eternal. What, what is the curse now? 
Well, let's acknowledge that to remain in sin, there, there are uh, fleeting moments of worldly pleasure that come about through the life of sin. But though there are those fleeting moments of, of worldly pleasure, that life of sin is, is a life separated from God, is a life lived in the shadows, and in the shadows, shame prevails. It's an existence that, though at times there are elements of worldly pleasure, it is an existence that is sad and empty. That is the, that's the curse now, but possibly more pressing is the threat of eternal cursing. John 3.16 puts it as perishing. Perishing isn't merely referring to death. Perishing isn't merely referring to some concept of annihilation where just our existence is gone all of a sudden. No, perishing is set against eternal life, which means that perishing is an eternal perishing. It speaks of an eternity banished from the presence of God. An eternity spent not as a cherished object of God's love, but as an eternity spent as an inescapable object of His wrath and darkness and torment, spiritually, mentally, and physically. Where a million years from now, we are no closer to the end than when we first began. That is, that is the curse eternal presented in this text that will result from simply doing nothing in response to this description of God's love. It's what it means to do nothing in response to true love. Praise be to God. There is another response shown in this text. That is to believe in Jesus. It is to come out of the darkness and into the light. It is to let the light of light, the light shine on your life. Free of fear, free of shame. Not because our past is sparkling clean, not because we've got a lot to show the Lord that He can be proud of but because Jesus has taken away the fear. Jesus has taken away the shame because our God has pursued us. Our God has loved us. Our God has made a way for us to be reconciled back to Him. Our God has made a way for us to become clean. Our God has made a way for us to become We don't respond this way. We don't respond this way in belief because we're superior to others. Not because we're smarter than others, because we're more clever than others. The text finishes with two powerful words. Two powerful words that shine a light over everything that we've read. In God. It tells us that our belief is empowered by God. Our belief is given by God. Our belief is in God. Our works are in God. 
we experience blessing in God. And those blessings are also now and eternal. Some of us have forgotten that our union with Christ, our groom, that that is the blessing meant to bless us now. We talked about it in the confession of sin. Michael read for you a passage from Revelation chapter 2. It was was taken from Jesus' letter to the church in Ephesus. And he had some good things to say about the church in Ephesus. They had fought well. They They had good orthodoxy. They believed the right things. They lost their first love. We don't fight simply to win an argument. We don't fight simply to be right. We don't fight simply to keep the wolves out. We fight for truth because in truth we get Jesus. We fight for truth because the truth points us to the love of God and the reconciliation we have with God through Jesus Christ. And when we see That through truth we get Jesus. Man, do we fight for love. We fight for truth. We get our first love. Some of us have been Christians for a long time. Maybe the passion for that first love has faded. Do you remember what it felt like at first? Remember what it felt like to be free of shame? Remember what it was like when you couldn't wait to open your Bible and, and, and read more truths about Jesus? Remember what it was like when you, you just couldn't wait to talk about Jesus with another friend? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt what it was like to just revel in Jesus? Let us us recapture that first love. Because that is what it means for us to experience the blessing of eternal life now. It is the blessing of knowing and living in the light of the love of God. Experienced through union in Christ. That is the blessing now, but... John 3.16 is famous for the promise of blessing eternal. And maybe that's why we lose our first love. Maybe we've, lo- we've lost our first love because we have, we, we have either forgotten or we don't grasp how glorious glory will be. Remember how long we said eternity will last? A million years from now, we'll be no closer to the end than we are at the beginning. Now, imagine that eternity as the consummation of our salvation, which is manifested in fellowship with God in Christ and partaking of the love of God, of His peace, of His joy, finally freed from the baggage of sinful temptation, finally freed. To experience 
the beauty of knowing intimacy without the fear of being known. How glorious will that be? The psalmist captures the beauty of that glory in Psalm 1611 when he writes, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Friends, this is the blessing of God's love that comes through belief. So which will it be? Disbelieve and perish. Or believe and live. It really is that simple. And yet sometimes the simplicity is confusing. What does it mean to believe? For so many years I was blinded <clears throat> to that question, by that question. I read John 3.16 and I didn't want to perish. Eternal life sounded a lot more attractive and by the grace of God I never really struggled with belief that there was at some point in the past a historical man named Jesus. And so I put all of that together and it was resolved. Believe that there was a Jesus and I get life instead of death. But surely, surely there is more to belief than that. There is. There is. Scripture paints a vivid and horrible picture of hell. There is no doubt about it. But at best, the fear that comes about as we read about this description of hell, will merely awaken us to the question of belief. For years I believed because I didn't want hell. It wasn't personal. Because like Nicodemus last week, I didn't see the reality of my own sin. But in the fullness of time, God brought me to see what in the fullness of time God must bring each and every one of us to see is this, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And we come to see that need. We come to see that desperation. At that point, belief is not merely something we claim in order to avoid pain. Belief must be a hearing. Belief must be a knowing. Belief must be a being transformed. Belief must be clinging to someone, Jesus, because we have come to know the love of God for us. Who yet while we were still sinners, He sent Jesus to die for us on the cross. Because when we see the depth of our sin, we begin to see the love of God. seminary professor who was asked what is the hardest passage you ever had to preach guess what he said John 3.16 the Super Bowl verse how can that be the hardest verse to preach we ask him that question and his response is telling he said I cannot for the life of me figure out why God would love us Friend, in light of your sin, have you come to see 
the love of God in a new and more glorious light. If you come to you wonder, how could God love me that much? Look again. And as you look again, see the love of God. Oh, beloved. The fear of perishing will not save us. It will not stir in us the kind of belief that is life-changing, that is eternity-shaping. It won't if this way. The truth and abundant love of God. Let us respond to that love by believing in Jesus. And embracing the life that he has given us today and for all time. Amen.